many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. Another wonderful morning with Alex Pye. And as she mentioned, this week on FBI Radio, we are imagining a culturally exploding city with Sydney unlocked. And that's why Yanto Ware is my guest on Out of the Box today. He's got a butt-ton of interesting historical knowledge about the building and alcohol regulations that, in part, made Sydney what it is today. He was CEO of Renew Adelaide, and now Yanto works in cultural strategy at City of Sydney. So basically it is your job to kind of unlock City, so that's convenient. (laughs) Yes, very convenient. Welcome on the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You're a bit of a champion of DIY and kind of of subcultures. Yep, I'll go with that. And so I was thinking maybe a nice place to start musically today would be with that dog. Yes. So can you give us a little bit of an idea about young Yanto Ware growing up in suburban Adelaide? Uh, So I think the song we're about to play is West Side Angst, which I end up naming my first fanzine after when I was... In my late teens, early twenties, and I remember listening to this this band back in 1995, 96, and at that point, being part of a subculture was very hard if you lived in the suburbs and there was nothing around you. Uh, you basically relied on staying up late watching Rage. Um, eventually, I found the equivalent of FBI in in uh, Adelaide, which is 3D Radio, and sort of stumbled across this band that was one of those sort of LA um, first wave of indie bands to get really big. So, it was sort of stable mates with with bands like. Um, uh, Weezer, and they were released on Geffen, um, and at that point, that was usually the best you could do if you were 15, 16 year old and living in Adelaide. It was still imported rock stars, but it was one of the first bands where I listened to that and thought, oh, I could probably play guitar, yeah. I could probably start a band. I've almost forgotten what it's kind of like pre-internet, trying to find your kind of cultural wavelength. It was really hard, yeah, particularly if you lived out in the suburbs and there was nothing going on. It wasn't like there was music venues out there, like the buses were an hour and a part, you couldn't really get into the city if you did get there, you know, you're wandering around on your own. And I think at that point when I started listening to, to that dog and a bunch of other bands, it was that, that bit where I had my, you know, leading up to my punk rock epiphany and <laughs> starting to be part of a music scene. And I remember listening to this band sitting in my room by myself as like a 16-year-old yeah. with all my sort of angst and, yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. I remember that feeling of when you finally found people that listen to similar music as you. Now it's yeah. not a thing because, you know, algorithms can kind of put all these people <laughs> together and we already know that that song's kind of popular yeah. and we can see what people are listening to on Spotify via Facebook mm. and stuff. But back in the day, if someone was like, oh, yeah, I like that dog, your mind would blow. Yeah, it was huge. It's like I remember being, you know, a couple of years after I probably got this, so starting to go to university and that would have been 98 uh, so we'd started to get the internet. People were starting to go online. And if you saw somebody, like band T-shirts were like the big marker. If you saw somebody wearing like a Ramon shirt or like a you know a Weezer shirt or something like that, that was your first point of, oh, there's another person and you invariably end up in a small town kind of knowing them. I'm not alone. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's give it a spin. It's That Dog on FBI 94.5. Yanto Ware is my guest today. <laughs> Three one zero, three dial one plus three one zero, and then 
strong contender for the shortest song I've ever <laughs> needed to play on Out of the Box. FBI 94.5 is a station you're listening to. My name's Ash Bertabez. My guest today is Yanto Ware, who brought that track on. Now, you said you were making, you made a zine based on the name of that band, That Dog. Yeah, also because I lived in the western suburbs, that song's about being angsty in western suburbs, <laughs> um, and ended up making zines for years and years and years. Um, and I think I made the, the zine that I... I had a job in an office where I was I was a clerk in a nursing home and I was in this tiny little office that had previously been a stationary cabinet. And the week I started, they bought a new photocopier and I just kind of went nuts. Like there was nothing else to do in the office. I was just making zines all the time. I got really <laughs> good at stealing photocopies from all over the place. And that was great fun. That's so really good. good yeah. And it's funny because you, you, one of those, it's one of those things you can't really professionalize. Zines are kind of like this scrappy format, yeah. but you managed to write a PhD on zines, which is, I, I find that highly amusing because some, like it a is lot of looking zines. Looking back, are, yeah. yeah. It was pretty entertaining. <laughs> I mean, but like a lot of zines are kind of like, yeah, rubbishy and scrappy, and it's not like there's uh, yeah. a kind of any quality control because yeah. it's so self made. So, what made you want to write about zines in general? Um, so I think having grown up in that sort of suburban, you know, suburban South Australia, which is very dull, and at that point, um, you know, growing up in that environment, there was always the perception culture gets made somewhere else, and it's usually made by professionals. And then getting into um, fan scenes where they were so willfully bad a lot of the time was quite a, an epiphany for me when I was in my late teens. And then I got really interested in that notion of the kind of cultural activity that makes you feel like you can produce it rather than it's something you have to be an audience member to. So this inherent sense of when you look at you know, a fan scene or when you look at or you go and see not particularly good local punk bands in my case, there's something inherent about them where you think, oh, I could do that. Like There's an inherent participatory element in that kind of aesthetic, which I thought was really interesting. And then around fanzines at that time... Uh, there was a push to writing about the personal, so people moved away from just writing about you know, music and started talking about identity and gender, and I thought that was absolutely amazing. You know, as a 19-year-old, that absolutely blew my mind and was really fascinated by what that kind of media or that kind of space could do and how it was constructed and how you might um, extend upon it, uh, particularly as I got older and a lot of the forums through which I had encountered that subculture, so particularly local music venues, local record stores started to disappear, and I thought, you know, that if I was three or four years younger, the things that meant that I went from being, you know, working class kid from a single parent family in a not very good suburb to being able to do a PhD, that pathway kind of dried up. And I wanted to know what would need to be in place to allow other kids like me who were five years younger to still get that experience of going from thinking that you know, culture was something made elsewhere to something that they inherently could do. It's a good point, though, because, I mean, we do have kind of a bit of a top down culture in Australia, you know, like I think yeah. maybe a, a good example that really ties it all up is the um, when when George Brandis introduced the kind of um, funding model, like they got rid of a lot of mm. general funding and then it was like you get a prize for excellence 
And it was kind of like, wait, who are you to say what is excellent? Well, that, I mean, that concept's a very inherent part of arts policy. So when you separate arts policy from cultural policy, it has a very long history, uh, which has always been around excellence, particularly after the Second World War. There was a, a movement. So our Australia Council came out of um, people looking at the Arts Council of Great Britain, which was formed in the late 40s, uh, sat on by, um, uh, what's his name, John Maynard Keynes. So, you know, these are people who were really interested in the idea of, of forming a social identity and they went after this kind of sense of there's going to be, we're going to, we're going to exhibit the, what we consider the best of British culture and we're going to use that as a way of binding the British people together. And they based that off of earlier theories and ideas. So you see the Romans doing the exact same stuff 2,000 years ago and specifically saying we're going to teach the owning class of the places that we've invaded. We're going to, you know, set up a curriculum and set up an arts course that also, gets... Also, like, basically packaging up what is the ultimate Roman culture. Yeah. And, and it worked incredibly effectively. That They were running, you know, Britain with very limited troops on the ground for hundreds of years. Britain copied the same approach, particularly when they went into places like India. So they said, we're going to teach people about Shakespeare and we're going to teach people about the best of British culture. And those people did kind of govern like pseudo-British. Uh, after the war, when they were trying to get this sense of unity, they did the same thing again. So they focused on, you know, opera, orchestras, that kind of high-end, um, you know, owning class culture. Australia basically copied that model. So when you look at our Australia Council Act now, uh, which is the same act we've had since the 70s when Gough Whitlam set it up, it specifies excellence. And that's obviously a subjective term, but when you look at it in the context of where those policies came from, they were about saying, this is the best part of our culture, we're going to teach people the best part of our culture and get them moving that, that way. But in Australia, where you know, we're dealing with the post-colonial moment. Um, we probably need tools to think about ourselves that aren't kind of mm. opera and Shakespeare. Not yeah. that those things don't have a place, but we need to look more at contemporary culture. And I think part of that, at least in my experience, has been the bits that aren't excellent, the bits that are experimental or are trying things out or are good for a sense of community or encourage a sense of agency. And our cultural policy hasn't reached a point necessarily where it quite knows how to do that. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, when it comes to ballet and opera, what percentage of the Australian population would really identify with that anymore? I would say it would be less than 10%. Well, there is so there's ABS data on it, but I can't remember what it was. But certainly when you look at things like, I mean, live music's a classic one, the participation rates are really, really high. The same with things like craft. And the Australia Council has done a good job of working towards supporting those kind of organisations. And we've seen at state and local level people try to, you know, arts organisations try to do that. So I really benefited from Arts SA, had really strong programs around things like um, opportunities for young people. But we haven't got to that point overall. So you were actually a founder of Renew Adelaide. And I'd only heard of it through Renew Newcastle. So this is obviously a, a big movement. But I mean... In Adelaide, what was the golden age like? Was there kind of a golden <laughs> DIY age that had come and gone? Um, yeah, there was. And people always talk about Don Dunstan's time in South Australia. So he did a lot of very pioneering, um, uh, forward-thinking social policy, arts and cultural policy. And then there was a point during the 80s and 90s where I think there was a lot more music. There was a very strong student culture. It was a, you know, a big university town. Uh, when I started going to shows, there was lots and lots of shows going on. People would play down south, they would play um, down towards Glenelg, so down on the coast, and then they would play in the city. So you could do like a small domestic tour within the metro area. And when did it start going downhill? Uh, so in the late 90s, there was changes in liquor licensing and planning laws, um, particularly in the city area, and that was absolutely disastrous for the music venues, particularly smaller venues. So... Uh, 
the shows that I used to go to, all of the venues that played in them either shut completely or ceased having live music. Are those liquor licensing laws and planning laws, are those changes kind of mirrored now by what we're seeing in Sydney with the lockout laws? Um, is, that, is that any kind of echo there that we're hearing? Lockout laws, sort of, uh, liquor licensing laws tends to go in the same pattern over and over again and has been doing that for you know three, four hundred years. Um, what they tend to not deal with and haven't dealt with since they were first brought in in like London in the 1720s is the idea of people doing anything active. The idea is with licensing, the inherent idea of giving someone a license is you have the right to serve these people alcohol and the assumption, because it's a, you know old-school feudal assumption, is that those people don't really know how to control themselves when they're drunk. And as that attitude tends to sort of tighten up, what you tend to see is smaller venues where people do things active tend to fade out. And depending on the cycle, you'll get larger, more controlled venues, so sort of the big bunker beer barns. I think that liquor licensing and, and the history of that is such an interesting topic. And how about we explode that topic in the next mic break <laughs> after a track? So what do you reckon about playing The Replacements now? Let's go with The Replacements. All Perfect. Right. Left of the dial. And can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to pick this song? Um, so this was a song that I was given on cassette tape when I was, I think, about 17 going to one of those venues that uh, decreased its live music programming. I was given it by somebody who was in a band who was trying to encourage me to go out and form my own crap bands.
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5 with me, Ash Berdebez, and my guest today, Yanto Ware. And as promised, we are going to suddenly blow open the whole history of liquor licenses. <laughs> I think it's going to be exciting because when was the first ever liquor license bought um, up? So the way we think about liquor licensing and govern alcohol consumption now starts in London in the 1720s um, with a series of acts called the Gin Acts. So they had this series of acts regulating gin particularly. Why only gin? Um, gin was the problem drink of the time. At that point, you know, beer was kind of like drinking water and um, beer was also attached to a lot of landowners who had um, were selling hops. So you kind of couldn't mess with it. It was such an everyday part of, of daily life. It was considered like a food back in the day. Pretty much, yeah, because you know, the water was more or less poisonous. Um, <laughs> so London, a lot of our regulation comes from London at the point where the Industrial Revolution was just starting to happen. So London's population was doubling every 50 years from about 1600 onwards. And I assume this means a lot of poor people. So a lot of poor people. So they also had things like... Um, uh, things called the Enclosure Acts, which kind of forced people off of farmland and changed the way people farmed. So you had a lot of people coming to the city trying to get jobs, um, no social welfare, all their community infrastructure was sort of broken down, so their sense of self was broken down. Um, they tended to be very poor during winter when there wasn't a lot going on, so there wasn't a lot of work, and they were pretty angry. Um, and what they would do is kind of what people had done for a long time before that, so some of them would open up their houses and have a distillery out the back and make cheap gin. Um, as a way of you know, generating household income, but also because it was a tradition to have a public house. So today's notion of the pub comes from the public house, which is somebody opening up their house and saying, OK, come over, I'm you know, brewing beer or making gin, and we'll sit around here rather than being cold in our own homes. Uh, so you get a bunch of angry Londoners, poor Londoners who were pretty desperate. They drink a lot of gin, and then they would tend to riot. They tend yeah, to go a bit crazy. Gin makes you sad. Gin makes you yeah, cry. Yeah, and they were already pretty sad and angry. Uh, and that also, that you know, the English were trying to wage war in France, and they were trying to have an industrial revolution. And having their working class population drunk and angry wasn't really working for them. So they set up this system where they said, "Look, you can sell gin, but you have to pay a, a licensing fee." And that licensing fee was way above what most of the poor Londoners could pay. So and who was mostly selling the gin? So mostly it was um, it was a, a cottage industry mostly generated by women. So it was a way of women who are otherwise denied a lot of access to the workforce making income for their households. So putting a licensing fee on you know, poor working-class women meant that they couldn't do it anymore, and it siphoned the um, profit-making through people who had more money who could afford to set up a larger you know, pub or bar. But how would they how would they monitor this? Because back in that era, they don't have I don't think they have a police force that no, really resembles didn't. ours. At they all. didn't get a police force until I think it was the 1760s at the Bow Street Runners. So everything was meant to be monitored at a um, parish level, and most of the monitoring was meant to be done by members of the community. So people would sign up to be like, okay, so I'm I'm the carpenter, but this year I'm going to be the magistrate. Um, which meant that when they had issues around the enforcement of the licensing, so that was very unpopular laws because it would break down people's you know, sole source of income and their primary places of meeting culturally, socially, um, they got very angry. So you'd end up with these situations where I think there was one where um, a guy had dobbed in somebody for uh, selling gin without a licence, took a bowl of gin to the local magistrate, and the magistrate pulled everyone to court and said, OK, so this guy has stolen your bowl, <laughs> I'm going to give him five years. You know, you should. And, it, and the bowl was proof. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the he brought in the bowl to say, look, they're selling gin illegally, and the other, and then said to the people selling it without a license, look, you need to go get a license. You get a slap on the wrist. But it was this real sense of um, 
resistance to enforcing those laws because they were seen as taking away a you know, fundamental right to sit around in someone's house and have a drink. Yeah, and what happened to some of the other dibber-dobbers, so to say? Well, there's some of them where... So there was, there was people who kind of would dob people in for a living. It was their way of making money. One of them, I think they... So they dubbed them in, the enforcement had happened, and then they found them and tarred, feathered them, and made them run through the streets. This one where <laughs> one of the enforcers died, and um, they dug up their coffin and drove a stake through their heart as a sort of show of resentment. So this really bitter wow. sense of, <laughs> you've betrayed your own community, we hate you. Like really, really full-on stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's if that's a first kind of uh, liquor licensing law, then maybe we should jump forward in time into Australia. Still in history, though. Um, yeah. Now, what was what were some of the big kind of like temperance movements, so to say, in Australia? So the big stuff that's happened in Australia is uh, things like six o'clock closing, um, which happened in the what, early 1900s. Before that, we basically copied the same systems they had overseas, and we had a lot of the same issues. So gins kind of, you know, the gin acts, the licensing acts, have essentially come from the same things as our planning and building laws, that we had cities that grew very, very quickly, had no idea how to govern them, they were unlike anything we'd seen before, and they produced the kind of chaos you get when you've got you know, huge numbers of people, poor infrastructure, you know, unplumbed, unmonitored, uncontrolled cities. Um, Australia maybe had a bit more chance because it was building its cities from scratch, but not a lot more. Uh, so we had... One of the ones I find really interesting is that particularly in Victoria, there was this belief that if you... So they wanted the public house, and they thought that the social environment of a public house was... It moderated people's drinking behaviour. And they thought women running public houses was better because they ran more of a... It was a house rather than just a bar. So Victoria had laws that specifically tried to encourage women to run bars and pubs. They all got wiped out when 6 o'clock closing came in. So the idea, we're going to stop booze at 6 o'clock. They had this idea that by limiting the hours in which you could drink, people would drink less, and instead they just <laughs> went to this weird binge culture. So that's that's where it pretty much started then? Um, I mean, it's, I think whenever we've seen countries adopt that sort of gene act, so the English style of liquor licensing, we en- tend to end up with a binge drinking culture because people see it as a sort of um, attempt to control their social and cultural lives, and then they begin to see drinking as a resistant act rather than as something embedded in their cultural social activity. That's really so, interesting. Yeah. I guess we talk about, you know, like European drinking culture as being markedly different, yep. you know, going to Berlin, have a nice beer on the street. You can't really... Yeah, no, no gin acts. So completely yeah. different history of liquor licensing. And I think if you look at... So for, for me as a kid, um, all of my drinking behaviour was learnt through going to live music. It was always embedded in another sort of cultural behaviour. Within that environment, it generally always seemed to feel a lot safer than, I guess, you know, you see guys who just go out and get drunk for the sake of getting drunk and beating each other up. Mm. Um, it, there's not a lot of clear evidence to to enforce the idea that, you know, if you re-embed alcohol consumption back into cultural behaviour, uh, that it moderates that behaviour. But it seems fairly logical. Like, it seems like, you know, if you're going to see the same people next week and you feel like you're part of a community and you're there because the drinking supplements something social or cultural, you're probably less likely to see there's a place where you want to act up, beat somebody up, try to prove how tough you are. Yeah, so the more dangerous pubs are the ones where there's no regulars, so to say. I think the sort of the six o'clock closing rise of the you know, uh, vertical drinking where you're just there to get drunk was one of those things that you know, a few more hundred years we'll look back at that period and think, geez, that was a really bad idea. 
Tell me more about vertical drinking, though, because, I mean, it actually fundamentally changed the design of our bars and pubs. Mm. What was the what was the original kind of layout like? What would you kind of see in so a usual public been, house? So before that, a public house was, it was like a house. So when you go into some old pubs and you see this, the lounge and the front bar, there was a lounge. You'd go in there and sit around. A lot of them would have games, so they'd have, you know, darts, or um, some of them had bowling alleys built in. What? <laughs> So I was, was thinking maybe standard. early Jenga, but that's pretty, no, that's they pretty had, rad. And that was pretty standard. I think in, in the UK it was very standard. Uh, after 6 o'clock closing came in, they knocked all that out. They brought in the circular bars we have now, so they have as many people standing around the bar as possible. They put tiles on all the walls because people pissed and vomited everywhere, basically. And if you look in some of the older pubs, you'll see there's a trough at the bottom of the bar. And that's because, you know, guys were smashing down four pints at once and just sort of urinating everywhere and then getting out at six. Is, is it a thing, or is have I made this up in my head, that the bar had a lot to do with the fact that, you know, because they used to have bars under the bar, so where you'd put your, like, drink down and mm. order a drink, they'd have, like, a bar that went around, like those old pubs often do have them. Were they so you could tie your belt there so you could stand up? <laughs> I haven't heard that, but it would make sense. Because <laughs> I think I think the like the old RSA was like, if you fall over, we can no longer serve you yeah, alcohol. Yeah. So they'd be kind of like helped up <laughs> by the help of their belt. <laughs> it's a really weird time. You have to look at it and think, why did they think that was a good idea? Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, we're trying to help you, but we're also trying to kill you from yeah, alcoholism, yeah. you know. <laughs> Interesting stuff. So, I mean, basically this whole new design of vertical bars seems like a kind of a very masculine place to be, especially back in the day. I don't think you'd see the ladies down at the bar so often. No, no. And a lot of pubs didn't have women's toilets up until the, what, 70s, 80s, because it was like a purely male place to go. Wow. Yeah. So you've done a bit of work looking at the kind of, you know, masculinity and drinking culture. Yeah. What were you looking at in particular? Uh, so years ago, I worked in a um, social sustainability research centre and we did work on alcohol-related violence in Adelaide, looking particularly at gender and identity and looking particularly at men. Because when you look at the statistics of alcohol-related violence, it's like 95% men between, I think it's like 18 and 35. So overwhelmingly, the violence that we, we see in the evening economy when people are drunk is driven by a very particular demographic. So we studied that demographic. And what we found in Adelaide, there's sort of one drinking strip because they changed the planning laws to say you can only have licensed premises in this one strip, so on Hindley Street. And we would find people would go there and act out what we referred to as the grand theft auto identity. So they would go there and make these videos of themselves walking around, sort of trying to prove how tough they are, acting out this kind of American <laughs> gangster rap identity. So wait, they'd be videoing it? Yeah, they used to film themselves. They would be. We found heaps of YouTube footage of these guys who would film themselves walking up and down Hindley Street, so the binge drinking strip in Adelaide. Uh, dressed on, I guess, what they'd seen on music videos of, you know, gangster rap, and then they would overdub it with gangster rap, and it was them just walking around, you know, drinking on the street. That is amazing. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was quite... But you sort of start to realise how much alcohol consumption usually is tied to some sense of identity or cultural practice. Like, it doesn't occur in a cultural void, and when you kind of get that cultural footing around it wrong... You know, Hindley Street was, I'd say Hindley Street was one of the scariest places I've been. It was equivalent to, to Newcastle. I very, you know, have one strip of a lot of people in a state where there's not a lot of employment. People are pretty disenfranchised. Going there on Friday, Saturday night, taking out all their frustrations on each other and 
Yeah, an interesting yeah. place. It's yeah. kind of the equivalent of like, say, maybe you going to King's Cross two years ago on the weekend and like filming yourself going down the street and then like overdubbing some push a <laughs> yeah. tea or something like that and yes. just <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uploading that to YouTube. Very similar, yeah. I wish that existed. <laughs> All right, I think it's time for a track and we've got something called Soft Boy Factory. Now, why do you want to bring this song on? So this is a band called Baseball from uh, Melbourne. Um who featured a lot of kind of Melbourne alumni. So I think they had, what's his name, Cameron Potts used to be in a band called 99, who were absolutely fantastic. Um, Evelyn from Pikelet was, I think, the drummer. Who yeah, she was on the show. Fits, she's a brilliant musician. Genius, yeah. And I think um, there was somebody from Love of Diagrams on there. And I remember seeing them. They were just a brilliant live band, and they had a song particularly about kind of masculinity. So it makes sense. All right. It's now to the box, FBI 94.5, and Yanto Ware is my guest today. Subscribe to the podcast at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.
Now, what was the time that you were listening to that song, the Shangri-Las? The Shangri-Las. Um, With Remember, Walking in the Sand. So, when I was probably in my more mid to late 20s, um, Adelaide was economically collapsed. Everyone was leaving, and that included most of the girls that I went out with. So, one of them moved to Japan, another one moved to Berlin, and one of them moved to the UK. And I remember listening to that song, having this sort of like, uh, yep living on my own in Adelaide. Again, I actually ended up covering it uh, in a venue that's no longer a venue that's just gone back to being a pub. Um, yeah, and it's just a great song. It's a wonderful song. So it kind of sounds like it's a, a bit of a time when a lot of venues are closing down. Yeah, and everyone was sort of leaving. So it's this really mm-hmm. sort of grim point in Adelaide in the sort of, I reckon it was about 2006 through to 2009, where Adelaide's economic collapse reached a peak. And, you know, that kind of sounds like you talk about economics like it's an abstract thing, but when it's your entire, you know, everyone you know leaving and the city you live in, just everybody flooding out of it and you're watching things shut down, it's quite striking. That's and really it, depressing. Yeah, it was, yeah. And kind of common to most smaller cities in Australia that they didn't really know how to deal with the shift to globalisation. Mm-hmm. They kind of just slowed falling apart. Everyone abandoned ship. Yeah. So you, you actually started out by making small festivals, but then you ended up, in Adelaide starting a actual space called Format yeah. Collective. And um, why did you want to make a space that was a permanent space? Well, mostly because everyone knew was leaving. So I started doing festivals because it's like, well, we have to find the few people who are still here and I wanted to try and restart the sense of scene and community that I'd grown up with. Um, initially did small events just because that's what we could figure out how to do. And then people kept saying, oh, you should start a permanent space. And I stupidly thought, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Um, and did it and learned a lot about regulation and liquor licensing law. So we took over a small building uh, off of Harley Street in Adelaide, um, spent a few years fighting with the council, um, ended up advocating for changes to liquor licensing law and working with the um, some of the, the government bodies. So I worked with the Department of Premier and Cabinet and Arts SA and the Planning Department uh, and tried to get them to think a bit more about the small scale, which I think they did fairly well. And format's still going, what, almost... 10 years after we first started doing it. Congrats. So, yeah. Wow. And so that's how you got into cultural policy then? Yeah. 
tried so, to run a space, tried to do cultural things, learned a lot about the laws that prevent you making culture. Yeah. Mm, and also, I mean, the thing is people who go into that kind of stuff are usually creatively minded. They're not actually looking at, you know, shifting through piles and piles of contracts. And what are some of the kind of contracts that you, you know, as a, as a creative person trying to start a creative space might have to start filling out, you oh, know, so what are the few. problems there? So, I mean, little things like trying to figure out how you sign a lease and um, how you pay the... Uh, guarantee for the lease and then what a development application is and what a um, occupation certificate is all of those things of which I learnt the hard way because I didn't know what they were and thought it was just a matter of signing the lease and that was scary enough uh, and then out of that experience because that you know to, to learn those skills is very difficult um, tried to copy the Renew Newcastle model and adapt it for Adelaide mostly to do that sort of capacity building so not just get people into the space but teach them how to get through all those hurdles and hold on to it and build their organisation or their business so they could keep control of that space. Yeah. And what what's a Class 9 building uh, code approval? <laughs> you know, um, like, and why do they exist? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> so within the uh, Building Code of Australia, which is the core thing that we use to assess the safety of buildings, there's a category in there called Class 9B, which is for places of public assembly. And that was originally designed for... Um, Things like major theatres, public halls, airports. Gradually over time it began to be applied to things like small music venues or art galleries, which it wasn't designed to do. And it was probably the biggest hurdle we hit trying to set up format. So we took over a battered old building that had previously been a Salvation Army store. Um, so a small retail site, which class 6 building, lower level of compliance. And we're told you have to upgrade this to a building classification designed for an airport, which is obviously Whoa. impossible. <laughs> very, very, very difficult. And there's a lot of flexibility in the way the codes are interpreted. So it's doable, but not without spending a lot of money on consultants. And that's not usually going to be something that young creative upstarts yeah. have. <laughs> and it kind of, I mean, that sort of building safety stuff is very important. But when you put barriers that high around it, there's sort of no way through. So most of my work over the last few years has been trying to think about how we might be a bit smarter about uh, building code interpretation to help support smaller scale creative enterprise. Mm. And what are some of the problems that people run into in Sydney? Now that you're working for City of Sydney as a kind of, you know, cultural strategist, yeah. you're probably having to work with people who are trying to repurpose venues that aren't necessarily yeah. airports kind of safe. Yeah. So yeah. you look at people who are trying to set up... Um, uh, things like small galleries are interesting. So in New South Wales at the moment, if you set up a bar, you can have cultural activity as a sort of a secondary purpose. But if your primary purpose is, you know, you want to start an art gallery and you want to do performance in that art gallery, you'll have to go through a higher level of compliance. And because most small organisations are going into smaller buildings, so the classic one here is the sort of the famed Marrickville warehouse scene, and you look at venues like the Red Rattler, which had really significant issues identifying what level of compliance was required, and not just, you know, not making it compliant, but simply identifying what they had to do was incredibly expensive. For most people, that kind of wipes you out. Hmm. I reckon we should whack on a song now because I'm just noticing how quickly we're flying through the hour. I'm having a little bit too much fun. <laughs> so we've got something from Home for the Deaf called Total Westerberg Morning. And now why did you want to bring on this particular song? Um, so Nigel Coop, the guy behind Home for the Deaf, is one of the first musicians I saw in Adelaide. And he's like the godfather of DIY in Adelaide. His shows are amazing. Um, I first saw him playing, He had a, it was a one-man show with a four-track, so instead of having like a mini-disc or a computer, he'd synced his whole show up to a four-track, um, so cassette tape, and he had this elaborate stage show where he would sort of dress up and do all this stuff, and then at one point, the four-track, the song stopped, and he 
kind of got in an argument with someone in the audience and they were yelling at each other and it got really ferocious. And then he went out to fight the guy and as he lifted his fist, the four tracks started playing Eye of the Tiger and we realised the whole thing was synced. (laughs) But he was like, he wasn't, you know, he made these terrible sort of um, bizarre songs, but he just took it so seriously. And I think, you know, for me as a kid, it was like, oh, you can be, you don't have to be great, but you can still take what you do really seriously. Tuesday morning hangover from Monday night Drinking alone, trying to feel alright My head's busy banging from a night of bad dreams Walking head down slow so I through their music on FBI.
Box and FBI 94.5. My name is Ash Berdebez. My guest on Out of the Box today is Yanto, where he is in cultural strategy at City of Sydney. And we've been having a good chat about just building and planning laws and liquor licensing and all of the fun things. But uh, <laughs> now we're coming up to the end of the show. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that song. So that was Summer Flake, who yes. we love very much here at FBI. Fair enough. Uh, how did you come to bring that song on? So, um, Steph Crace, who's the main person from, from Summer Flake, I was in a band with for years and years, uh, and is a brilliant guitarist. I don't think we really realised how great she was until she stopped playing in our band and started doing her <laughs> own stuff. You were holding her back. Yeah. She'd been in a couple of other bands. Like She was in Bat Rider and she was in Birth Glow, who were stunning. But that was the first one where she was obviously you know, writing all the songs, recording them. It's just like, oh yeah, we have been holding you back quite a bit. Okay, do you yeah. remember any of the kind of like uh, memorable moments when you were in a band with her? Did you have any particularly large gigs or anything? Um, so actually the, the last time I would have been here uh, was with Steph and the biggest show audience-wise that that band played, we played at a Clipsal 500, so we played at a car race. I think fortunately she left by that point and it was the <laughs> worst show I've ever played. It was just unbelievably bad. Wait, so what kind of audience has come to Clipsal 500? Is it a fairly kind of like indie music loving crowd? I don't know how you describe crowd? it. It was the opposite of what we usually would play to. Um, and it was the only show I ever, I was the bass player, and the only time I ever broke a bass string on stage in, what did they play, probably for 15 years. So got up. They didn't give us a line check, so we went out there without any idea what we sounded like. Touched the bass and the string just snapped. Um, fortunately, Wolf and Cub were there and lent us one of their basses, but they had in a weird tuning, so there was this sort of awkward moment. And then it was also the only show I ever played, so there had been 10,000 people there, the only show I ever played where there was no rider whatsoever. So it was sponsored by Foster's, but there was no rider there was a fridge, Rude. yeah. Like they had a fridge full of beer, and then they put this really comically big padlock on it, and that was for like, the headline band was Wolf Mother. So they would come and get beers out, and we just sort of sit there watching. And then padlock them. it again. Yeah. That's so yeah. sad. That is so unfortunate, <laughs> and especially because you think that you know, especially with a, a big racing event, money would be getting thrown around like crazy. You'd think so, but yeah, really miserly. I think we got three hundred bucks, and I didn't want to do it. I argued with my bandmates, and they're like, no, it's going to be you know, new audience. Don't be such a snob. So I went and did it, and then we all regretted it. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the audience like? Did you get a good response? Um, no, no. <laughs> the only upside was we'd played it with the local support at the Big Day Out a few weeks before that, and we'd had our most of our guitars stolen. And two guys who were in the crowd who were you know, music people that were there for some reason were talking about us and saying, oh, yeah, they had their guitars stolen. And the other guy said, oh, what kind of guitars? It's like an SG and a Telecaster. And the other guy's like, oh, someone just tried to sell me an SG and a Telecaster. So we managed to get them back because of that random conversation. Wow. We figured out the guy who was like the fence trying to sell them. Got back all but one, which is an old Hofner. So there was there was a kind of a silver lining to it in getting back <laughs> our stolen stuff. But in terms of, yeah, it wasn't a great show. And, yes, and the crowd didn't like us. And the whole premise just stinks. So that was yeah. when you were in no through road. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you miss it? Um, yeah, it was pretty good fun. I was playing another band for a while, but I think... Um, just reached an age where I'm too old and too tired. Yeah. So with FBI all this week, we're looking at Sydney Unlocks. We're looking at kind of a creative future for Sydney. You know, the, the roadblocks blocks that are kind of standing yep. in the yep. way and the, the ways that we can kind of facilitate ourselves to becoming a cultural capital in, in Australia. And you're going to be part of an event this weekend. Yeah. So you're doing FBI Presents Sydney Unlocked at Vivid Ideas. And what are you going to be talking about? 
Do you, do you have any idea yet? Yeah, I think they've got be... me on a panel talking about the value of culture to cities, um, which should be interesting because you know, it seems pretty obvious that culture is a fundamental part of all cities. Uh, it also seems that you know, post-globalisation, we've had all of our cities all over the world moving away from manufacturing and primary industries and moving to a knowledge economy, so cultural production is more important, so there's a more obvious economic driver. But you know, the issues Sydney faces aren't unique. Every city is having difficulties figuring out how they um, support the agency of their citizens and the cultural output of their citizens. You they just haven't quite figured out how to build good policy off of it yet. Yeah, and, th- and that's your job. That's where you come in. <laughs> yes. So you mentioned the economic kind of side of things, that you know we're not actually manufacturers like we used to. That's part of the reason yeah. that those warehouses in Maryville aren't really full of manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we still have a big manufacturing sector, but it's not what it used to be. And you mm-hmm. can't build a city on you know being a, a hub for manufacturing of primary industries anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I want to know, can we talk like the quantifiable stuff? Like trying to see it from the regulatory side, you know, not my perspective. Mm. I can kind of assume that small cultural spaces and those kinds of people that might frequent them aren't going to bring in a lot of money and so we shouldn't make it easy for them and there's no real economic incentive to let cultural spaces bloom. Is that the case? Um, Depends on how you look at it. So when you look at the breakdown of cultural data, so places like the ABS produce data on cultural industries and that's very, very broad, so everything from sort of visual artists through to, you know, designers and architects. Uh, and that total value is at about, I think they say it's about $50 billion, of which the fine arts sector is probably about 4.2, So not even, not even much at all. So, well, wow. f- I mean, $50 billion as a whole um, is, I think it's about 5% of GDP. So it's a, it's a very big industry, but it's also that the people who work in it produce ideas or they work in other areas. So there's a lot of people who are, you know, industrial designers or artists working in, like, manufacturing. So there is this very definite economic flow on. But then there's also the social benefit of having people who believe that if they invest their time and their energy into their city, they can set up something that benefits their community. And without that sense of ownership and community, um, you end up with a bunch of other side effects that are you know, more negative. And health-wise, I actually want to kind of get an idea about do when we have cult- small cultural spaces... Mm. Do they actually have an impact on health? Do they have kind of like a positive, quantifiable impact on kind of like social health or actual human health? I haven't seen... So there is a lot of um, crossover between arts and health. Uh, Probably the one that's the best way of looking at it is that there were studies done in the early 2000s by... I think it was done through UNESCO where they looked at sense of agency. And what they found is that people did feel more part of their, you know, they felt mentally better, they felt healthier, they felt more engaged when there are cities where they could do something, when it wasn't just great big skyscrapers or just retail, but it was spaces where they felt like they were active cultural participants. And so it actually is good for health. Yeah, so it is, at least for mental health, whether it's, like, I don't know whether there's clear data showing it's good for physical health, but you, in general, if you have a, a stronger sense of um, self and a strong sense of community around you, that's far better than if you're living out in a suburb where you can't meet anybody, there's nobody sort of to go to with your problems, you're more likely to have both mental and physical health issues in that sort of environment. So it sounds like this weekend's going to be really, really interesting looking at Sydney Unlocked at Vivid Ideas. And so if anyone is listening and they're interested in seeing the conversation unfold and being part of the conversation uh, on the 18th of June, 
So that's 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. You've got lots of different panels happening. Yanto Where my guest today is on one of them. It's $15 to get a ticket from Mosh Ticks, and it's at the Vivid Ideas Exchange at the Museum of Contemporary Art. All right. Well, I think it's time for our final song. Good. And we've got something by the Moonies waiting here, and I wanted to ask you, why this song? Um, so this, I think, is um, uh, a song they wrote. This is another Adelaide band, sort of DIY icons renowned for their capacity to sort of talk shit on stage and just ramble about nothing. The main guy who does it, Sandy Sennon's still got a band, is still going. Um, I saw them playing their version of pop music and thought this is great. They had a logic of the song should take longer to play than to write. Um, and they would have <laughs> they would have declared themselves too old to rock and roll. I think they were like 26 or something, and now I'm 36, so much older. And I guess I often listen to it and think, oh, yeah, yeah, I have sort of reached a certain age. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Don't say it so. Thanks so much for coming out of the box today, no, Andrew. Really enjoyed it. Okay, here we go. It's the Moonies, Too Old to Rock and Roll. <laughs> You're too old for rock and roll Like it's just a stage you 
94.5.